Welcome to the Business Diaries podcast, where we uncover the stories that shaped the business owner. Brought to you by Lisa Settle and Isla O'Hara. Welcome to the Business Diaries podcast. My name's Lisa Settle. And my name is Isla O'Hara. And we'll be your hosts for today. Our podcast acts as a platform for businessmen and women to share their stories. We hear about the stories that have made an impact in their lives and how it's led them to where they are today. We also get to hear about the challenges and the opportunities that often pop up along the way. And hearing all of these experiences from different business owners is not only interesting, but it can be enormously useful when it comes to decision making in our own businesses. And it's not just in business that we need to make decisions. Let's face it, it's all areas of our life. And our guest today has made it her business to help us with decision making, particularly about health. Have you ever had a blood test and been told your cholesterol is too high? Or your BMI could be doing with being a little bit lower? Or maybe you've been told you're pre-diabetic. What should you do next? Well, stay tuned. Here comes Isla to fill us in. Thank you, Lisa. I'm delighted to welcome Alice Yates to the Business Diaries. Welcome, Alice. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Before I hand over to you, Alice, to share your story, let me tell you a little bit. um, Let me tell you a little bit about her. Having started her career as a nurse and going on to specialize in diabetes management, Alice found that nutritional therapy was a natural path to follow, having experienced her own life-threatening illness. So our intro is short and sweet today because we're going to hand over without further ado to share your story, Alice, over to you. Thank you. I was 50. I wasn't ready to be old, but my body had other ideas. In March 2011, it tried to give up on me. For the best part of two years up to this life-changing moment, I'd seen the doctor more times than I like to remember. GP specialists, all those other therapists had just become part of my life. Then my body just gave up. I was lying on a couch in a therapy room. And although I was conscious, I couldn't move. I literally couldn't. The brain was not connecting to the body. I lay there for three hours and finally managed to get myself home. How, I still don't know to this day. Thankfully, I didn't cause any harm to myself or anyone else. I'd actually said to myself that morning that I'd stopped driving. I love driving. Driving is something I've done, you know, since I was 17. I was 50. I didn't feel safe. I'd had moments when I'd literally got home and gone, oh, I don't remember how I got home. So not safe. Once I got home that day, I just slept. Hardly even waking for a wee for the best part of 36 hours. I woke at four in the morning in excruciating pain. My husband rang the out-of-hours doctor, got told that I should go to the surgery the next morning. There was a lot of fear around right now. It was like, what do I do now? I was a nurse. I'm very guilty about bringing ambulances. And my husband said, what would you like to do now? I just said, you have to bring an ambulance. And actually, later in the day, the consultant said to him that if we hadn't rung an ambulance, I might not have made it. So we did. 
About seven hours later, having been in hospital for six of those, going backwards and forwards for loads of tests, we finally got some answers. I had a thyroid problem, a serious one, something that I later discovered is called myxodemic crisis. And when you mention that to other doctors, they go, are you sure you have that? It's really rare. Yes, I know. Um, I was referred back to my GP, but my husband had other ideas. Since we got home, he called the specialists I'd seen only three months before. The next month was really tough, particularly for the people around me. I wasn't that aware, really. I was in bed, not really eating or drinking, being tempted with little things by my son, who was at home revising for A-levels. He'd bring me up little snacks, cups of tea. After that first month, I started trying to get up. Just getting downstairs and back up again was a drag pulling myself up with aching legs and struggling to breathe. The next six months was slow, very slow. And I finally realised that the medicine wasn't working for me and the doctors had nothing else to offer me. I started looking for help elsewhere. So a friend of mine recommended this doctor to me who wasn't actually practising as a doctor any longer. He was practicing a nutritional therapist so that he could actually do the work that he'd been trained to do when he was originally um, a a doctor. He was an endocrinologist and he recommended, um, or actually he did a whole load of physical tests on me, which no one else had done and worked out what was going on in my body by doing physical tests, just like my grandfather would have done in the 50s as an endocrinologist himself. It was... uh, It was a really, really tough time. And I just thought that this was my life going forwards. But I wasn't really, that was my comment. I wasn't really ready to be like that. And I wanted to find out as much as I possibly could about getting myself better. Gradually, over the next five years, I learned more about what had happened and started to build up my strength and my knowledge. It was 2014 when I started at CNM to train in nutrition. Really, it was to learn more about how to help myself. It wasn't until I started working in clinic in year two that I realised that I could use my knowledge and experience to help others. So in 2018, I started my own business. I'd never done this before. Started to discover that, yes, I was good at seeing and helping clients but I had no idea about getting those clients in the first place. Over the course of the last four years, I've gradually learned how to do it, how to take every opportunity that comes my way and give as much value as I can to everyone who crosses my path. And I love it. Part of that growth has been choosing what to specialise in. It all comes down to hormones, my own experience, and combining them with others. While on the one hand, I have first-hand experience and knowledge of diabetes from my work in the field. On the other, I have personal experience of what it's like to have no energy and no reserves from thyroid disease. I do this work because I don't want you to suffer like I did or like those people that I looked after who had diabetes. You don't have to struggle. There are things that can be done to get you feeling like yourself again. 
For some, this happens quickly. For others, it might be a longer journey. But I promise you, it's nearly always possible. The journey I've been on has taught me so much about how to look after myself and how to listen to others and help them. I thought at five years I was in a great place. Yet I've continued to find more things to improve my health further. My ultimate goal is to stop having to take thyroid replacement. Who knows when that will happen or even if it will happen. My adult years as a nurse, when I finished my training working on diabetic ward, I worked then as a specialist nurse. It's one of the happiest times of my nursing career. I loved helping young diabetics look after themselves better and also minimise the pain and suffering that the older patients were going through when their complications of diabetes were causing them pain and discomfort. Then became my own illness, which I believe began in 1993 after giving birth to my second child. I was diagnosed with depression when he was 18 months old. I believe now that was the beginning of my thyroid issues. Fast forward to 2009 when I was trained to be an antenatal teacher, working part-time as well as being a wife and mother. I was all things to all people. So many women out there are the same. All things to all people. So many people that come to see me are in just that situation. They're putting everything into their lives and trying to be a perfectionist. My poor body was telling me to stop, but I wasn't listening. My blood tests were normal, so I was okay, or so I thought. It wasn't until 2011, having had two years of my body either racing or exhausted, that it finally gave up. My progress was very slow the next couple of years. Friends suggested I go to see someone. This is the gentleman I was talking about earlier. I was by this stage able to start looking for myself as well, particularly. Now I had an understanding of what was happening. Now the progress started to happen. I actually started to be able to think again. Very soon after this, I went back to work part-time. It was at this stage that my own interest in nutrition was starting to emerge. I'd been eliminating different foods over the two years before being admitted to hospital and found great relief from it. Gluten, dairy and sugar had all gone from my diet. Though not perfect, it did make a difference to how I felt. I was taking the supplements that had been recommended and realising what an impact these could make when we got it right. There had been some tricky moments with one or two of them. My interests stem from these two very separate parts of my life, going back to my 20s and my nursing career that sparked my interest in diabetes. I was lucky enough to work with a very inclusive team. We were all taught how to do the best for our patients together. And then, in my late 40s and early 50s, I became unwell myself and found that the thyroid medication the doctors were prescribing wasn't working. I know now that my body just couldn't utilise it effectively, so I wasn't recovering. That's what initiated my nutrition journey. Wow, Alice. <laughs> what a tough time. But thank you for sharing that with us. That must have, must have been really frightening for you and your family. Um, so um, 
I, I really do feel for you. But how lovely that your son looked after you too. He recognised that he had a little role to play there in bringing you cups of tea and snacks, etc. Bless him. Um, I, I really appreciate you sharing that, but I, I want to sort of find a, a few things there that pick out because there is so much, as there always is, so much to speak about. But I know that now you're focusing um in the direction of type 2 diabetes you have a lot of people that you help in that respect and although i can resonate with type 2 because my father is um type 2 diabetic and my son is a type 1 diabetic so uh, i think there are a lot of people that get confused by the two different types of diabetes so would you mind perhaps if we could kick off um and and just identify the difference for the for the benefit of the listeners yes of course so essentially type one is when the pancreas stops working um stops producing insulin it's that simple um it means that because we have no insulin we can't metabolize sugar properly and therefore we have to replace the insulin um, type 2 is a little bit more complicated in that it's almost mechanical. It's the fact that the body no lo- is no longer able to use the insulin effectively. Um, and that's because the walls of the cells are not receptive and the insulin can't get into the cells and the sugar can't get into the cells. Therefore, it hangs around in the uh, bloodstream. And because it hangs around in the bloodstream, the pancreas is working harder to make more and more and more insulin to try and get it into the cells. And that's just an ever-decreasing circle, if you like. The Mm. um, process causes more strain on the body. The body keeps trying to work harder. And unless we give it some relief um, using medication or diet or um, the alternative things that I use, we have to help the body to get those mechanisms working properly, basically. Um, Otherwise, it just spirals to a point where the pancreas can't work any longer. And that becomes a type 2 diabetic who's dependent on insulin. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But hopefully that, you know, you can prevent that from happening. Whereas with type one, obviously they are dependent on insulin, and and that's that's there's no, nothing you can do about that. Um, Absolutely, I think it's worth saying as well that I mean, don't quote me exactly on these statistics, but ninety percent of the diabetic population are are made up with people with type two, yeah. opposed to that very small. Um, although it is increasing, unfortunately, but a, a small number of type ones and type ones, it, it isn't a lifestyle. Um, so I've, I've had lots of myths over the years thrown at me. You know, did you feed your son too much chocolate and things like that? And that you know that there was that was always going to happen. It was in his genes, and there was nothing we could do about that. Type two. There is the hope of preventing that. And and Alice is going to tell us all about that as well, aren't you, Alice? Yeah, I would say I'm just going to slightly correct you on that because I think preventing is a word that's a tricky one because there are definitely people that can't prevent it. Yes. Um, There are definitely people that could either slow down the progress or put themselves into remission 
or not actually get that far because they've looked after themselves. Yes. Um, yeah. And looking after yourself is really what it's all about. Yeah. I think that leads nicely into a question that I'd like to raise because we obviously know so much more about diabetes now and throughout your career, Alice, and without being disrespectful, you, you, you've had a, a good long career. Yeah. Making, making you sound really old. I don't, I, I don't oh, I am. <laughs> it's amazing. You're only 21. My point is, is that particularly in the area of diabetes knowledge and understanding and, and management, I mean, we know so much more now than we do when you started mm. your career. And, and, and you talked about, you touched on that in your story when you said that you went into nursing and you, you joined this, this team, this inclusive team, you said, and you became a specialist nurse. Did you always want to be a nurse? You know, how, how, did, you, how, did, you, how did your career in nursing start? Actually, it started be, by being inspired by the vicar's wife in the village. Okay. <laughs> um, so um, I kind of lost my way having failed my A-levels. I lost mm. my way a bit. And she and her husband were incredibly supportive to me in that period. My mum and dad didn't really know, know what to do with me. And um, I spent quite a lot of time with her. And she was the one who, she was a nurse herself, and she was the one who persuaded me that nursing would be a good idea. Oh, and you've never looked back. But I'm, I'm just going to pick up on what, on what you just said, Isla, about, about the changes. Mm. When I was um, working in the 80s as a diabetic specialist, we didn't even have the HbA1c, which is the measurement for long-term blood sugar. It came in while I was there. And we certainly didn't have... Um, CGMs, continuous glucose monitors, which are such an amazing um, feature of helping uh, type ones now. Oh, you gosh, know, they are amazing. Definitely. I mean, yeah, you must yeah. find that incredible, Lisa. Oh, it is. Uh, you know, just just not to have to finger prick. You know, six times a day, mm. just you know, having the beauty of just zapping it with your phone yeah. is yeah, amazing. Absolutely amazing. So yeah, it has come on in leaps and bounds hasn't it definitely I I I, I like when you, you started your story you said that I'm 50 and I'm not ready to be old well I know what you mean about that and you did did explain that but it kind of resonates with me because I think we all use age as a marker don't we particularly mm -hmm. 50 <laughs> um you know you think well I want to get to 50 I don't want to be on medication I don't you know but and I'm guilty of this, very much so. I am guilty of this by putting a mark on that, well, I didn't want to take cholesterol medication before I was 60. And, you know, so you think, well, I won't do it, then I won't go back to the doctors. I know it's a bit high, but I won't go back. Which is ridiculous. I mean, where did that well, thinking even come one. from? It's very interesting, that, Lisa, because I understand what you're saying. Um, what... I'm trying to do with people is actually to get them to look at alternatives to taking medication. So mm. for instance, I had a client recently, and this is, you know, this isn't about diabetes, but it could be about diabetes because of the, the long-term effect um, with somebody with high cholesterol. Mm. And we got their cholesterol down to within normal range in three months with no medication. Wow. And that cholesterol has stayed down. 
That's with food and with supplements. Now, it is possible to delay, let's say, the onset of the moment when you have to stop taking medication. Mm. And I, I fully admit that's not always possible, but I would suggest to most people that giving themselves a period of three to six months of trying other things, taking responsibility for that problem themselves, will not only help them to feel better in themselves, but it will they'll feel so much better about themselves because they've done this you know themselves they've done it yeah. for them yeah um, I, I mean it's worth I, a try as well isn't it even as you say you can't it. guarantee it but it's definitely worth a try yeah and it's just a little proviso in there obviously if it's life-threatening you're not going to give it three to six months no but in most situations it is possible so when people come to me with a pre-diabetic diagnosis like someone did last week I'll say look you know are you prepared to give this three to six months and she said well I've got to go back to the doctor in three months time and have another blood test I said perfect let's get your blood sugar down before that next appointment so that you sit you can see how much progress you've made in that period of time I just want to jump in here because pre-diabetic is something we've referred to twice now in in this podcast I I don't really understand what that what that means how how would somebody know that's a lovely statement Isla because actually (laughs) when I was nursing in the 80s the the definition pre-diabetic didn't even exist yeah you were diabetic or you weren't diabetic and there was a number at a point at which you became diabetic now that first point becomes pre-diabetic so there's there's a there's a range by which the doctors measure it and mm-hmm. essentially and then there are, I'm not going to use numbers actually on purpose because um there are so many different types of numbers and people might get yes. confused by it yeah, yeah so you've got a range up to which you are not diabetic you've got a range of just above that which becomes pre-diabetic and above that you become diabetic now the thing is that actually If you're one point below the pre-diabetes mark, so you're not diabetic, Mm. you probably need to be taking a look at what you're doing. If you're one point above it, you need to be taking a look at what you're doing. If you're 10 points above that and properly diabetic, you certainly need to be taking a look at what you're doing. But you see what I mean? There's this range that pre-diabetic has become a statement, whereas actually 30 years ago, it didn't even exist. So listeners today, you know, listening to this show, wondering whether they might be diabetic or not, maybe they've read a little bit about it, maybe they've got a couple of symptoms, you know, much as we all love and admire the NHS, it is difficult to get an appointment and you can be waiting up to six weeks in order to get your first appointment. So we have no idea of these numbers and it's a fair bit of time before we can go and get any kind of clarification as to what point we are on the stages, you know, the, the mm. process that, that you've just outlined. So what should people be looking out for? The, the most common issues are um, weeing okay. more often mm-hmm. and being thirsty. Those okay. are the most common. Next, you get tiredness. 
you might get headaches, you might get blurred vision. Then you'll move on to things like cramp or tingling in the fingers and toes, depending on what level you're at. Yeah. Those are the, yeah, so those are the kind of main symptoms. So and, and where would you begin? So what would the process be if I came to you and we discovered or I came to you and said, look, my doctor said I'm pre-diabetic. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to do next. What, what kind of things? I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want you to talk us through your mm, everything, obviously. I don't want to give you mm. tricks of the trade away. But what, what you know, what, what would what would we expect to, to happen next? Well, I would always take a full case history before I start um, giving any sort of support. But the real basics, drink plenty of water. And I know that sounds really, really simple, but I would say that a large proportion of the population don't drink enough water. Mm, yeah, um, if you're a fizzy drink drinker, try to replace your fizzy drinks with water or fizzy water. Now, fizzy water is not ideal, but it's better than a fizzy drink. Mm. Um, so I had one lady come to me who... Um, was drinking was basically existing on diet coke oh god and um her blood sugars were horrendous mm. and um she put on a lot of weight existing on diet coke as well so we talked about what she could replace it with and she said well i could drink fizzy water and i said okay so every time you walk into a shop that you're going to buy a diet coke you're going to buy a fizzy water and it's almost that stopping yourself before you walk into the shop to say, well, I'm not buying Diet Coke when I go in here. I'm going to buy fizzy water and putting the mm. positive spin on it. So that's one um, is drinking plenty of water. Um, most women need to be drinking at least two litres. Most men, two and a half to three. Um, and I give some... Very straightforward advice. If you're someone that drinks lots of tea or coffee, put a glass by the kettle. Always have a drink before you have a cup of tea or coffee. Always have a drink when you wake up in the morning and always have a drink before you start a meal. Okay, so mm. if that's adding in, for some people that's adding in three or four glasses. For some of them it's adding in six or seven glasses. Suddenly, a, you're drinking less tea and coffee, but B, you're drinking more water. And that's really important because if you think, when you make a syrup, you put sugar into water and it goes thicker. When you get, well, sugar, yeah. when you get sugar in the blood, the same thing happens. So the I, more I can tell you, Alice, my dad had some blood tests. And mm. I, uh, when they're of that age, my dad's 89, when they're, they're elderly, obviously they need more water. And trying to get them to drink water, so there's two things I want to say to you. Trying to get them to drink more water is, is horrific. It's uh, it's like a, a daily thing I say to them. Stay hydrated today, don't forget, don't forget. Mm. Uh, but they will say, whoa, I've had, you know, I've had three cups of tea already this morning. You know, they've, they see that they put water in the kettle so to make a cup of tea and that's that's being hydrated no it's not but he he went to um the hospital and they tried to take blood from him and he's he honestly it was like getting syrup out of his arm and, and, and that's exactly it so the more you donate yeah. it the easier it is yes. it moves around the body more easily and the easier it is for the kidneys to to excrete it mm. 
And the kidneys are working very, very hard to get rid of that sugar. And it's one of the reasons that long-term um, diabetics develop kidney disease. Mm. Mm. Um, sorry, I digress. So Sorry, um, yeah, no, I interrupted you, but I just thought about, it was, yeah. Um, would be um, eating protein with every meal. Mm. Um, I'm not talking about eating masses of protein in the day. I'm probably talking about a portion of protein with each meal. So um, this is very sort of basic, but a, a fist-sized portion of protein with breakfast, lunch, and your evening meal will slow down the release of sugar from that meal. And my third um, is that the amount of protein that fistful should be equal to the amount of carbohydrate on your plate. This is just a starting point, okay? So if you're eating a piece of chicken the size of your fist, then you're eating potatoes or rice or pasta the size of your fist, and you're filling the rest of your plate with vegetables. Mm, that's, that's really good advice. And, advice yeah. and, and and I think a fistful is, is good because people you know could put a huge chicken fillet on their plate and think, well, that's protein. But really, you're talking about, what, three ounces or? Three so? or four, probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So really important. Yeah, so just yeah. can we go back just quickly to the tea and coffee drinking? Mm. And and <clears throat> um, yeah, tea and coffee are interesting. So yes, of course they. It, it depends on how you drink your tea. Okay, so if you are having weak tea with a little bit of milk in it, you're probably getting some hydration from it. If mm. you're drinking strong tea, you've got a um, diuretic. That means it, it helps fluids get out of the body. So it's actually encouraging the kidneys to get rid of fluid. And coffee does the same thing. So actually, with strong tea and with coffee, you need to drink a glass of water to replace the water that the coffee and tea have taken away. That's interesting. Jeez, that's good advice. Because I know my husband yes. says, oh, you know, I'm, I, we've had loads of cups of tea today. Um, it's interesting. It's going back to our point earlier about how knowledge and understanding has changed mm. over the years, obviously, as we've learned. But there are still these old adages that, you know, ring true, as in, you know, a cup yeah. of tea is the same as a glass of water. Yeah. And, and actually, the other thing that is really noticeable, people say to me, oh, well, I drink loads of herbal tea. Watch out with herbal tea. Some herbal teas are diuretics and get your body to clear out water, get rid of water. Some are very hydrating. So just be, I'm not going to go into the details because there are so many, <laughs> yeah. but just Google it. Look up whether chamomile or peppermint is a diuretic. I don't think either of those two are. Um, and whether, yeah, if it's not a diuretic, then it's helping to hydrate you. Well, this brings me to my, my other question, I think, because, and I don't know if there's an answer to this, because, you know, there is so much information out there. And we've just said, well, you know, we can go and look it up on Google, but you know, we can look anything up on on Google now and we get so much information. But if we are just wanting to be sensible about the choices that we're making, you know, we're getting to an age where we realise we need to just look after ourselves slightly better, take responsibility for our diets is one of, you know, one of the topics we've been, been talking about. Where do you start? What's a good place to start to try to educate ourselves in a, in a sensible, in a sensible way? 
Yeah, um, have a quick chat with me, by all oh, means. Fair. I'd always be happy just to talk through what to do. Mm. Um, but I think the sensible way to start is to think of your plate and split it in three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one portion is carbohydrate, one portion is protein, and one portion is vegetables. It's like those old yeah, if you the think thing about, about the old days was meat and two veg. Absolutely. And actually <laughs> what's happened because of the advent of pasta and rice, we um, very often put pasta or rice on our plate first and then we add what's going with it. And with pasta, we have a bit of sauce, but we very rarely have protein. And with um, rice, we put the the whatever it is on top of the rice and we've got this huge portion of rice just think of splitting your plate in three it's a really nice way to easily manage what's going on your plate Mm. and you know something that I read recently that I thought was really interesting was that how plate sizes have changed over the years (laughs) our plates have got bigger which I'm not, talking about a kind of what are they about ten nine to ten inch dinner plate? I yeah. think that's what mine so, are. Yeah. You know, so I I have on a couple of occasions started using a smaller plate mm. just to because it's a really good idea because I think sometimes there is especially when you're feeding a family and you 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 know that what you've just cooked's got to go around four people for example and you divide it up don't you so you just dollop it on the plate yeah and yeah. you know and sometimes because it's there you eat it but it's not criminal really to leave a little bit um but equally if you don't want to leave things because a lot of us are very conscious about you know the waste etc just if we would to perhaps pause and, and by putting making it on a smaller plate you could perhaps eat that bit with the idea of going back for more but actually once you've eaten that bad bit you might not decide you need more i think yeah, that it's, it's a very good point lisa of of mm. not putting all the food on the plate at the beginning regardless of what size the plate is not putting all the food on the plate at the beginning having a third a third a third of your food but not filling the plate Sitting and eating it, sitting, if you're lucky enough to be with somebody else, sitting, chatting for a bit and assessing whether you're full. Mm. Because actually, very often if you sit, sometimes it takes people 10 minutes or so to feel full. Mm. And it's, you know, it, it just give yourself a little bit of time after you've eaten the food and very often you'll be quite comfortable and you won't need any more. Mm. I think that's uh, really good advice. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is good. And and uh, one of the other things is that as we get older, don't we find that we flip um, the way we have our meals? So uh, I read a, oh, I can't remember what they're called. What do they call the people that re- reach a um, hundred? Blue, blue. Sen- oh, I don't know. Yeah, not uh, yeah, centennials, but blue centurions no. rather blue, blue oh for goodness sake i've got an article somewhere and but it was really interesting to see that they, they located i think there are six places in the world that have a high a community with people that have reached 100 yeah. and they they concentrated on the article concentrated on what how they ate their food and, and, and basically how they lived their life yeah it's to do with that it's very much to do with being settled 
happy, mm. relaxed, and eating in a communal space. Yes, yeah, and that, that was definitely eating part as of a it. ritual, if you like. Um, I think we've got very much out of the habit of eating around a table. Yeah, not in this house, thankfully. But um, we had a—I'll never forget this. It's a group of my son's friends when they were at uni. So they must have been around twenty. Um, they're both nearly thirty now, but. When around 20, and I was sitting next to a really nice young man, and he said, oh, this is really good. I really like this. And I said, which bit? He said, well, the food's very good, but actually sitting around a table like this. And I said, oh, do you not do that at home? No. I said, do you all eat the same meals? No. So but what do you do for food? We just go to the fridge when we're hungry. And I said, and then where do you eat it? Oh, usually in front of the TV. And I'm like, the alarm bells in my head, just yeah. with my upbringing and my children, but also with my nursing and nutrition training. For a start, when we're sitting in front of the TV, we eat more. Um, secondly, when we're sitting in front of the TV, we have more adrenaline running through our system, so our digestive system isn't working properly. And usually our poor stomach is concertinaed because we're slouched in the sofa. Slouched, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so, and also you, you, you tend to, to, to be in front of the TV also encourages you to um, eat certain foodstuffs. You, you associate watching a movie with... With a takeaway or ice cream or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So another client who came to me because she was eating, she lived on her own, eating ice cream. And I don't mean, I mean, eating whole pots of ice cream in front of the TV at night. So mm. actually what we did along the same lines as the coach, try and find a replacement. But actually what we did was I said, do you sit at the table to eat your food? Yes. I said, OK, so when you finish your meal, put two scoops of ice cream in a bowl and sit at the table and eat it. Put the ice cream back in the freezer. Make that your ritual. Within a month, she was eating ice cream once a week. She'd got out of the habit of it. It was absolutely incredible. Just taking away. It wasn't even taking away. It was just changing the way she was eating it was enough to make her think. Yeah. And, and really, that's what it's about. Mm. It's about thinking before we do things. Yeah. I think this yeah. has all been absolutely fascinating and thank you for sharing so many tips. We've got so much to take away um, from this episode. I've uh, just Googled the, the, the term for the, the longevity communities and that's Blue Zone. Oh, oh right. Zone. That's what I was okay. looking for. <laughs> but Sorry. No, I was just going to say, Alice, uh, you mentioned that, you know, you've, you've started your own business now. So tell us what's happening in your business at the moment. What are you working on? So... I see people one-to-one. -one. I work at a retreat in Kent, which is amazing. I just I see people for 15 minutes who are guests on the retreat um, just to see if they'd like any tips or tricks to move forward, just like we, how we've talked today. And um, I also run a support group for people who are worried about diabetes, pre-diabetes, um, 
Well, they have diabetes in the family. It's all, mm. yeah, it's all the same group of people who are worried about what sugar is doing to their body. Mm. And the results we've had from that and are just amazing. And that is a WhatsApp accountability group, live calls, um, an article once a month and a guest expert once a month. And there was the, it's amazing to see how much people are achieving. So I call that the Healthy Habits Club. Mm-hmm. And it's about supporting people to keep up with their healthy habits and not to drop them at the, you know, when something slips in their lives and um, and they find themselves too busy or too whatever to keep those habits up. And because they get these little reminders and these emails once a week, they are um, they are staying on track where I think they probably wouldn't have stayed on track otherwise. Mm-hmm. And is that health? Did you say that Healthy Habits Club is free? Uh, no, it's not free. It's twenty pounds a month. They get a lot right. of they get a lot of content. Um, mm-hmm. Anybody can have a thirty minute free call with me, right? Um, and then you can. Everybody gets the first month of Healthy Habits Club for free, so you can see what. Um, what's going on what you'll get and um and then you start paying your 20 pounds a month in the second month fantastic great well as we approach the end of each podcast we always mention our, our takeaways so i'm i'm keen to know what yours is isla i think that mine um i think that mine really is going to be recognizing it's not so much about my age that i should be focusing on it's more about the health of my body at the time mm. And and ways of of guiding it to being a better body. Mm, really, I think, I think my takeaway is having a moment to reflect on how easy it is to develop bad habits, <laughs> unhealthy habits, and then actually on the positive side, actually how easy it is to make very small changes that are going to make a a very big difference Mm. and that it's of course it's our you know it's always our choice but in line with what you're saying Lisa about it's not about our age it's about our body and you know we have a responsibility to look after our body as best we can totally yeah totally I'm so with you I love that comment at the end that Isla that is just perfect it doesn't have to be complicated it can be really quite simple and it can be taken one step at a time. It doesn't have to be all at once. It's just one step at a time doing little things to help ourselves to stay healthier as we age. Yeah, I think it's interesting how sometimes the easy things are the things that people get overwhelmed with because, yeah. you know, you've broken that down and it's like, well, yeah, that's really easy. But and that's so what Healthy easy. Habits people Club is it. about. That's yeah. exactly what Healthy yeah. Habits Club is about. It's maintaining those easy things. Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, thank you for telling us about healthy habits. And, and you know, how can people find out more about that? And how can people get in contact with you? So, um, Alice Yates, nutrition.co.uk, and that's Yates with two E's, Y E A T E S. Um, and um, that's the easiest way you can contact me through there. And the Healthy Habits Club details are on there as well. Perfect. And are you on social media? I am. It's also Alice Yates Nutrition on Instagram and um, Facebook. And my 
LinkedIn is Alice Yates as well. So okay, it's perfect. Not, not complicated. <laughs> we'll put those in the in the show notes Thank uh, you. for people who are interested. Yeah, for sure. Alice, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I know that you're busy. I, I hope you've enjoyed it, chatting with us. I've very much enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. No, this is a pleasure. Sadly, the time keeps ticking. It always happens. And, and we've reached the end for today. But before we finish up, obviously, we want to thank uh, people that help make this podcast happen. And that's certainly Paul Cheese for all his business diaries support. He he helps us with um, all the sound. And Isla, do we have announcements or anything to say before we leave? Just, just to remind everybody that you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. So we keep up to date with any new episodes. And to say we have a really healthy backlist now, a lovely backlist of amazing stories, all sorts of different types of stories. Um, so for you to go back and listen to and do let us know what you think. Lisa and I love hearing your thoughts. Uh, and, you know, to do that promotional bit, please like and subscribe and leave us ratings and reviews for the episodes that you like on your favourite podcast platform. You can find us on, I think, all of the platforms. Yep, that's great. Yes, we, we would appreciate that. It would be very good. Make sure that we, we're, we're entertaining <laughs> somewhere <laughs> along the line and being useful. That's what it's all about. Um, so, well, finally, thanks to you for tuning in. We, we really hope you've enjoyed today's podcast and, you know, that you'll join us for the next one. So bye for now. Bye-bye. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this edition of The Business Diaries. We would love to hear your feedback. Please find us on Twitter and Facebook at The Biz Diaries. 